Parshat Vayishlach. I mean Vayeshev, but Parshat Vayishlach. Okay, let's look at that. So. How do you deal with evil? How do you deal with pure evil? And I'll give you an example. And I'm not judging the person, but the event seemed to me in that moment to be almost as bad as it could get, at least for me. I'd never seen anything like this before. I don't know if I told you the story, but it's worth retelling because I forgot I told you. So we were in Hebron. We were doing Meluim in Hebron. And um, it was a very difficult reserve duty. And the first day of reserve duty, without going into all the details, you do what's called a chafifa. Okay, that means the, the, the commanders who are finishing their 30 days, you come that day early, your reserve duty begins when they still have a couple of days left, and you, you've just done two days with, the, with your men in, in a place, in Beit Jubrim, wherever it is, practicing, you know, just go from civilian life into reserve duty, you know, you're going to dangerous situations. You gotta get guys head back in the space, they have to do a little practice, make sure they remember how to shoot, how to fire, hit the roll, run, whatever, all the rules. And then on the third day of their training session, all of the officers leave, and the commanders kind of take over with like one higher commander. And the officers go to where we're going to actually do Kav, where we're going to hold the line, this time in Hebron, to learn the area. Well, next day, when everybody gets there, and you have to take a position, you need to know what the deal is. And so you meet your counterparts from the previous Milwin, who were just finishing, this is their last day, they're in a great mood, and you're like, oh, whatever. And they're showing you the ropes. Every position, every patrol, every how many men do you need, there are logistics involved, where's our base, where are Gvilot Gizra, how far can we go, what are the rules of engagement, whatever they are. It's a lot of stuff. And um, we go to one Tatspit, one uh, overlook. Okay? A Tatspit is basically you get on the roof of a building, there's some turn in the road or somewhere, there's been a, rock, a lot of rock throwing, a lot of Maltav cocktails. We're in the middle of, of the Intifada, the first Intifada. <coughs> Um, there was a lot of violence, a lot of stuff going on, assassination squads, terrorists, bombings. Um, so it's very intense. Um, and they set up a, a, a tzpit. They'll take like the roof of a house and they'll set up a unit there because in that place there was a lot of stuff going on. And that way they can spot if something's going on. They can return fire if need be, protect the civilians on the road. So this is one of those tzpit. And we get up to this tzpit and we saw something I'd never seen before. Imagine you have a roof and there's like stone walls, just like we have on the roof here. There's like a stone wall about yay high, right? You know, two, three, four feet high, whatever. And from the top of these stone walls, they'd put corrugated tin um, sheets, like heavy sheets that you can't really bend. And they'd nail them to the, to the, to the stone walls. This is a very strange thing because if you think about it, you're on the roof, you want to be able to look over the side. You couldn't really, like, it was hard to, you couldn't lean on the wall because there's these tin. So I asked the, the officer, I said, what, what are these here for? She says to me, oh, you'll see. And finally somebody explained to me, right, they throw rocks. They throw metal bars. They saw us, guys were getting injured. <clears throat> so they put these corrugated tins here. And that way, right, there's a school over there. And kids come out of school. And that's what you do if you're, you know, an Arab kid in this neighborhood, right? You know, you're on your way home. Throw a, throw a bar at the, at the soldier. It's like a game. I don't know. So, you know, one o'clock, whatever it is, the kids get out of school and they throw things. So it was dangerous. So we nailed up these corrugated tin pieces. That way the soldiers can take cover under this until the barrage stops. Now, I and all my fellow officers had the same thought. Like, that's ridiculous. 
that's not how the Israeli army responds to violence. Let's hide under the tin corrugated roof. But I didn't say anything, you know, I'm not going to... But I made up my mind, there's no way, like, we're going to fix this. Sure enough, we start Miluhim. First day, we get a call, all hell broke loose. I mean, they're throwing bottles and bars and stones right from down below. And there's like dozens of kids and they're throwing this stuff. Now you gotta understand, these are like seven, eight, nine, ten year old kids. If a 20 year old is throwing a metal bar at you and you think it's dangerous, you can shoot. You first have to shoot in the air, you have to tell them there's a hole, no, you can't just shoot him to kill him. You can shoot at his legs if you think you're in danger. But who's gonna shoot at an eight year old kid? You know, not me. I don't wanna be in the news afterwards. And you can't blame the kid. This is something, this is education. So we're trying to stop this. Every time we called in the jeeps, right? By the time the jeeps got there, the kids were gone. And every time the jeeps left, the kids started up again. And this would last for like half an hour, sometimes an hour. And then eventually they get tired and they go home or whatever. This is ridiculous. One day, two days. So we're all struggling with what to do about this. And I had an idea. I was just a lieutenant at the time, but I said to my, you know, to the uh, company commander, I said, look, I have an idea. So he brought it up with the battalion commander. If you look at the map, right, this particular area above Kikar Gros, it's like on a hill, right? And on the other side of this hill, top of the village, right, there's like empty vineyards and areas. So why don't we come early in the morning, come from the back, do a hike up the back, wait until the kids all go to school. We'll go up, we'll park ourselves on the top. And then when they start throwing stuff, the tzpit will be able to direct us exactly where they are, where they're running to, right? And, and we'll come from behind, we'll surprise them, we'll catch a few. We'll catch a few, you know, their parents will have to come, they'll have to pay big fines, do this a couple times, it'll calm things down. Okay, so battalion man says, that's a great idea. In fact, it's your idea, so you should do it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> kind of forget when you volunteer. So we do this, <coughs> woke up at like three, four in the morning, took the jeeps into like the middle of the vineyards, they dropped us off, I think there were like eight of us. Uh, and I had to navigate us back up to the appropriate hilltop, and we did that. We get there, it's like, I don't know, we're, we're below the hilltop waiting until we're sure the kids have gone to school. Then we go up and camp ourselves somewhere, right? And even a few people may have seen us, but nobody puts the connection. They don't realize what we're doing. And so we, now we have the good news is now we have like four or five hours to just sit. I mean, you know, take out the fistukim and the garinim and, you know, paper and whatever. One o'clock comes, now we're ready. And uh, we get the word that they started throwing. So we start working our way down the mountain, trying to figure out how we're going to catch some of these kids. All of a sudden, I get an urgent call over the radio. Now, we didn't have, today they have like these portable radios. In those days, it was a memkuf. It was like a big thing you carried on your back, right? And the radio man is always right behind the officer, and so he's getting the call. But we've got the radio down low because we don't want the kids to hear us coming. So he, he, starts, he starts yelling like they have a Raul Panim, Raul Panim. Now, Raul Panim is a person with a mask over his head. These were the, the assassination squads. These are like serious, serious guys. Like if you, so it was illegal for a guy to walk around with his face in a mask because nobody walked around in a mask because he had acne, right? And if you saw a guy with his face in a mask, right, you would go through what's called Noel Atzirat Chashud to stop a suspect, fire in the air, fire at his legs. If that doesn't work, you fired him. But if it was a Raul Panim, if it was a, a suspect who had his face, then you could pretty much be sure he was part of the assassination squads. And then if he didn't stop, you just shot. Right, because, so now, the guy says, he's, he's, he's 200 yards from me, right? He's Raul Panim, he's directing, he's whatever, we don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's got a grenade, maybe he's gonna throw, this is a serious issue. 
So I take off in the direction that the Tatspitan has told me. And I didn't realize, because I wasn't paying attention, you know, I was like, I don't know, this is like my second miluim. Uh, you know, I was newly married, I was like 26, 27, I was still in shape. The, the other guys were with me, I was like the youngest guy in the squad, you know, so pretty soon, not because I'm such a great athlete, but because Baruch Hashem, they had, you know, been living life to its fullest, very full. And uh, so I don't even notice that I'm on my own. And I'm running through these alleys, right? And I come around an alley, because the guy's directing me, right? And I knew where he said I'm supposed to be. But I don't have the radio with me. I come around the corner. Literally the distance from the Aron Kodesh there till maybe the middle of the room. You're talking about 40 feet, 30, 40 feet. Is a guy. He's got a mask. He has a Palestinian flag in one hand. And a mace. You know what a mace is? It's a medieval, it's like a metal rod. And the end of the metal rod has a chain. At the end of the chain is like this spiked iron ball. And he's swinging it over his head. Now, if he throws this and he's any good, he'll kill somebody. You get hit with something like that, from that kind of distance, there's no, you know, this is, this is danger. Right? So I scream at him, what if? And I'm pulling my gun up. And if he doesn't stop or drop it, I'm going to shoot. Now, he's not in front of me. We're on the side of a hill. So there were like terraces. So he's like two terraces below him. Even though he's only 40 feet away, it's not so easy to get to him. He sees me running down the street, right, towards him, drops the flag, drops the mace, and takes off. And I run down the alley. I get out to where he was, and I'm chasing him. This, this guy was like an Olympic runner, which makes sense. A guy with a machine, a guy with a machine gun is, is, is about to, you know, shoot you. You run like... So he's taken off. And I realize after like 30 seconds, I'm not going to catch him. Right? He's two levels below me, and he's heading for this archway. And I'm closing on him, but I realize if he gets through that archway, I don't know which way he's going to go, I'm going to lose him. So there's a whole way that you stop because you're running, you know, how you stop and shoot. And I stop, pull up my gun, and I scream, wakif, right? And I'm about to shoot him. He turns around and realizes I'm going to shoot. And I can't miss. I mean, it's like, it's like the distance from, you know, I don't know, from me to Yoni, I mean, it's, it's, it's not far, right? So he turns around, realizes I'm going to shoot him. I'm, I'm going to shoot. And he throws up his hands. Now, I know that there are people in the world who, like, ignore that. But in the Israeli army, if somebody throws up his hands, throws up his hands. It's now illegal to shoot him. And even though part of me really didn't want to shoot another human being, to be perfectly honest, these assassination squads, I wouldn't have lost any sleep over it. I really was going to shoot him. I was this close. So now I'm like slowing down and I got my gun on him and I get down below and I get down, remember it was like two levels below me. I jump down off the, off the terrace and I realize he's a kid. He's like up to here on me. And I pull off the hood. He's like an eight, nine year old kid. And I'm thanking Hashem that I didn't shoot him. Never mind like being taken to court and having to explain why you shot an eight year old kid and why didn't you realize an eight year old kid. Never, to live with killing an eight year old kid or something like that. I mean... He's not part of an assassination squad. So now what do you do? I'm totally on my own, in the middle of Hebron. I don't know who's coming my way, and I'm holding a kid. That is not a healthy situation. I have no radio. So I wait about two minutes, and thank God the other guys get there, and we call it in, and we tell them we're going to meet them in Kikar Gross, and there's a, there's a system. Like, we don't do anything to the kid. You don't even tie up a kid. He's a kid. You wait for a vehicle to come. They load him up on the vehicle. They take him back to the base. Then they have to find his father. There's a unit in the army, Kishur, uh, that, that does these things. They know Arabic, whatever. And they find the family. The family now is going to have a serious issue. They're going to get fined a fortune. 
They came up with a system that actually worked. I believe this is one of the major reasons that they ended the second, the first intifada. He's going to pay 5,000 shekels because his son had a weapon and was aiming it at an Israeli soldier. He's going to pay another, I think it was 4,000 shekels for wearing a mask. And he's going to pay a third, I think 2,000 shekels for not listening to a soldier. That is a fortune of money. It was like 11,000 something shekels that he was going to have to pay. And these are Arab families. They don't, I mean, that's like two months salary for them. Okay, so we put him in the jeep, right, that came, and they take him back to base, and we basically finished our mission. And we decide, we're gonna do this a couple more times, and then, the, the, by the way, after this happened, they stopped. It was very interesting, right? All those corrugated tins didn't stop it. That stopped it, at least while we were there. So we get back to base, and this kid is sitting in the back of the jeep still, and they're waiting for the family to show up. We found the family, I don't know. The family heard about it before we got to them. I have no idea. A delegation from the village comes to the entrance of the base, which is not that far away. Right? It's a small mutzav. There's like 30, 40 people in mutzav. And uh, one of them apparently is the dad. And the dad walks over to the jeep where his son is sitting. The kid is terrified. He's been crying. Right? It was everything I could do to resist the urge to just take some candy out and give him some candy. And I struggle with that. He's an eight-year-old kid. What does he know? That's what he was taught. Right? That's what his friends are doing. That's what he does. If you were an eight-year-old kid, you'd probably do the same thing. Right? And the only reason you wouldn't do it is because your parents tell you you shouldn't be doing that. But if your parents aren't telling you that, you're not. So you can't blame the kid. But on the other hand, to give a kid candy, for th- like, I'm not going to do that either. So I'm struggling with this. And the father walks. I figure the father's going to say, no, Bobo, come. He ever said, you know, you're a fighter. Something, right? I never saw anything like this. The kid is sitting in the back of the Jeep, okay, like on a bench. The father comes over to him and gives him a wallop. I never saw such a thing. Sends the kid flying into the front of the Jeep. He then runs around to the front of the Jeep and we're like in shock. We just like, huh? Grabs the kid, smashes his head against the dashboard and starts to pound this boy. We ran over to him. We grabbed the dad. We had to pull him off this boy. He would have killed him. He would have killed him, I think. I never saw anything like this. Now, never mind, they took the kid, they got the father paid, whatever. I could not get this out of my mind. I could not get this out of my mind. How do you deal with that kind of violence? That kind of evil? Struggled with this for a while. Is the society we're dealing with a completely different society? How do you deal with... I mean, again, that was just to me, and I'm not judging the person. I don't know what I would do if I lived in his shoes. But to me... To beat an eight-year-old boy, no matter what, is just pure evil. And, and that image, I wish I had not seen it, that image is still in my head. It affected me as a parent, it affected me as a teacher, it's a powerful image. Why do I tell you this? This week's parsha. Good seems to confront evil. Yaakov is coming back to Eretz Yisrael. And he sends messengers and they bring all these gifts, right? And the messengers come back. Big discussion, did the messengers actually get to Esav? Did they tell him? And we all know Yaakov and Esav had a falling out. Yaakov took the blessings. He got the Bechorah. Was it above board, underboard? That's a discussion for a previous time. Esav is not happy with this, right? Esav clearly says in the Pasuk, When my father dies, I'm going to kill you. Rivka and Yitzchak, certainly in the Medrash, they understand where this is going and they tell Yaakov he has to go. They'd rather have a live son far away than a dead son next door. And he goes off and he lives in the land of love for 22 years. Now Yaakov is coming back. 
and he's coming to see his father. He wants to come back to the Negev, where his parents are from. And to come from Haran to the Negev, he has to go through the Aradam. He's going to pass through the province of Esav, the world of Esav. And he kind of knows that Esav is going to hear that he's coming. So he decides, like Dim Turupala Makkah, he's going to send, he's going to prevent the crisis before it happens. Let me shmuchal Esav. I'll send him gifts. Right? I'll send him gifts. By the way, what is Yaakov feeling? Right? Because the messengers, and he has a whole plan. Okay, you're going to, according to the message, you're going to bring a big flock. And then you guys are going to wait a bit and then go, every time Esau thinks, wow, look how much he brought me, he's going to think he's done, and then more is going to come. I'm going to overwhelm him with this. This is not just we're bribing you with cholent. Then there's burgers, then there's kegel, then there's your shalmik. It's never ending, right? So what is Yaakov feeling? The messengers come back. Esau is coming towards you. He's got 400 fighting men with him. Now, 400 fighting men, I mean, Avraham had an army of 300 men and he won the First World War. He took out four kingdoms. So in Yaakov's mind, 400 men is a huge army. And it is, by the way, in the standards of those days. So what does it say? What does Yaakov feel? Anybody know? What's he feeling? Yaakov is terrified. He's terrified. Which is a very difficult question. He's Yaakov Avinu. Why are you terrified? That's what you said at Beit El. Hashem promised you it's all going to work out. Why are you terrified? All sorts of different answers that are given. Yaakov is terrified of killing. Shat is Yaakov is terrified. So what does Yaakov do? Right? He's terrified. Right? How do you confront poor evil? How do you confront pure evil? How do you meet Esav? So it says, He does three things. He's afraid. He's distressed, which according to Rashi means he's worried about the impact of what it will mean to fight a war. Will he kill innocent civilians? I can tell you that that's a very difficult aspect of war, but we're not going to have that discussion, but that is a fascinating discussion. It's very interesting. He doesn't run. He doesn't run. You know, I once went to hear, I went all the way to Haifa to hear a speech because a, a survivor of the Battle of the Suez Canal in the Yom Kippur War was speaking. Now, when, when over 300,000 Egyptian soldiers crossed the border, crossed the Suez Canal, there were three tanks that were on the Barlev line. Three tanks that were manned. And he was in one of those tanks. None of those tanks survived, but some of the crew members did. And that's a whole story. And I went to, I wanted to meet a person. Like, he didn't run. How do you not run against 300,000 men? That boggles my mind. And I went there just to ask him that question. And I thought I would get some great, you know, we're standing for the Medina that I could quote. You know what he said? He said, where would we go? We're on the Suez Canal. We got 120 kilometers of desert behind. Where are we going to go? But they didn't run. But you know what they did? They fought. Yaakov doesn't fight. At least not initially. How do you confront evil? And then Yaakov has this struggle. Vayivater Yaakov levado. Yaakov is left alone, right? Vayavek ishimo adalot adbo Hashemesh. Right there, or bo shachar. He gets into this struggle. And when you read the psukim, it's not clear who's struggling who. Vayarki lo yacholo who? Who couldn't him? It's almost like this, 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 this image the Torah wants to create. 
You ever watch those movies where like the, you know, the, the guy is confronting the burglar in the house and the burglar gets the knife and they're struggling back and forth and the woman gets the gun and she's trying to shoot but she doesn't and it's all over, you know, and you don't know who, I don't want to hit my husband, what am I going to do? So that's my image of those took him. It's like, and he's grabbing him in the dust and you can't tell who's who. That's what the Pesach wants to convey. Very interesting question. Who's Yaakov fighting against? Soloveitchik says, Yaakov is actually fighting against himself. He's struggling with himself. Who am I? Right? By the way, it's interesting. What happens at the end of this story? Yaakov becomes Yisrael. Now, every other Av, Yitzchak never has to change his name. Avram and Sarah change their name. From the time Avram becomes Avram, it's actually an Isser to call Avraham Avram. That's a whole interesting discussion. Right? You never see him named Avram again. But not, not Yaakov. Yaakov is Yaakov, but he's also Israel. We're called Bnei Israel. But we're also called Bet Yaakov. So that's a whole interesting discussion. Yaakov is struggling, and Rashi quotes the Medrash Sarosh Al-Esaf. He's fighting Esav. The good of Yaakov, the potential of Yaakov to change the world, is doing battle with the evil of Esav. So how do you do battle with evil? So I want to share with you an amazing idea. It's a difficult idea. If you had to pick a commentary to learn from how do you deal with pure, raw evil, who would you pick? You have to learn. If I had to share with you a thought from someone who wants to say, how do you confront pure, raw evil, who would you pick? Who would you pick? Pardon? Pardon? Holocaust survivor. But most Holocaust survivors don't have Torah on that level. Maybe. I would go to the Age Kodesh. The H. Kodesh of Clodum Esklam and Shapiro was one of the last rabbis of the Warsaw Ghetto. And he went up to heavens in one of the satellite camps of Treblinka. And if ever a Rav confronted pure evil, it was the H. Kodesh. And he gave a shear. By the way, giving a shear, he was risking his life. I mean, if they found him giving a shear, they wouldn't just kill him, they would torture him, and they would torture all the people who came to a shear. We have no idea how easy it is for sit and learn Torah. What they wouldn't have given to be able to spend one evening in a base menace like this where you could just sit and learn Torah, and nobody's coming through the doors. And one day, when we leave this world, and, and we should have a shear on that, what happens to the neshama, and all of and how that works, what Chazal have to say. But there is an idea that you will experience in an accounting of your life, that Chazal talk about. And the, the Kabbalists have a very deep imprint on this topic. And you're going to find out, or we are going to find out, all the things we could have been, we could have done that we didn't do. And it's going to cause us tremendous pain. It's not a physical pain. It's, it's like the shame of when you knew you could be better. And that's going to be one of them, I think, for all of us. Because we're going to stand against people like the Eish Kodesh. So the Eish Kodesh has an unbelievable idea. Listen to this. Quotes of Gemara and Sanhedrin. The Gemara and Sanhedrin says, who is Esav? Okay, who is Esav? So the Gemara says like this. Rav Shumba, this is a Gemara and Sanhedrin and Daf Ayn Tetam and Bed, 49th folio. Woe to the great son that was lost from the world, right? You know, the great treasure, whatever. Because if the snake hadn't been cursed, if the snake hadn't been cursed, we would all have been given, we would have received two holy snakes. You'd send one to the north and one to the south. 
sandalonim tovim, ve'avanim tovot, u'magaliot. And they would have brought us back jewels. In other words, they would have done, they would have brought tremendous goodness into the world. It's a strange Gemara. So listen to what the Eish Kodesh says. This is, this is intense. Eat the Gemara. It says in the Gemara, he quotes the same Gemara I just quoted, right? And he says, Kashali, it's difficult, this Gemara, these snakes that go and they bring you good. Why would we say that if the snake, the snake would bring us great things? The snake was the reason that everything went bad. I mean, the snake represents evil. Now, who else is the snake? Where does the snake live? In the field. It was the most cunning animal, whatever that means, of the field. Who else lives in the field? Esav. Esav is an Ish Sadeh. Esav is the snake and the snake is Esav. In the, in the words of Chazal, in the deeper understanding of text, they're connected. We're going to have to understand why and he's going to tell us. This is crazy. Why would the Nachash have been such a good messenger, such a good gift to the Jewish people? And why couldn't good come from the other animals? Why doesn't the Torah say if the Nachash hadn't been cursed then all the animals of the field would have brought us good things? But we messed it up or they messed it up or the snake messed it up. So listen to what it says. The Efsha Ki'itab Yushalmi quotes a Mishnah Allah in Yushalmi. There's a Yushalmi that says that they said to the snake I understand an animal. Why does a why does a lion kill an animal? Right? Why does it why does it bite a human being? Because it's hungry. It wants to eat. And if you get in the way of the lion, it's hungry, <coughs> it'll eat you. I was many, many years ago I was in South Africa. And while I was in South Africa, and they were into like safaris and whatever, I didn't get to go on a safari, but whatever. And one day, uh, I get home at the end of the day to where I was staying, we had Shirim, and they're all talking about this story. There's this video that was going around, it was all over the news. There were a couple of Japanese tourists. And they tell you on safari, don't get out of the jeep. But there's always one moron who thinks he knows better. And they see two lions, and they're whatever, in the distance. And so they get out of the jeep just to catch a photo. But they're in the savannah. And they don't realize there's this tall grass. And there's a lion in the grass. And they don't see him. And you see one guy's video, and the other guy's in front taking a photograph. And all of a sudden, this lion jumps out of the savannah, and it, it literally puts the guy's head in its mouth. It, it clamps down the guy's head. The guy's head disappears. And there's now a lion on his head. And he's pulling the guy away until finally he rips off the head. And you see this on the video. It's unbelievable. Nebuch. Everybody that week, nobody got out of their jeeps. Everybody stayed in the jeep. <laughs> Why does an animal do that? Why does a lion do that? Because it's hungry. Lion. And this thing's there. Pardon? Lion or lioness? I don't know the difference, right? <laughs> it must have been a lioness because they're the ones who hunt. The lions have it good. They hang out. They, they bring them their dinner. Don't wait for this when you get married. It's not going to work. But anyway. So, 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 a, so a lion, right? So, but, but a snake? A snake doesn't attack a man because it's going to eat him. It just attacks. So listen to what the, what the, what the Gemara says. A lion, a wolf, they, 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 
they attack and they eat. Right? Amalei, so, so he says, why do you attack? You don't need it. Why are you snake? Why are you, why are you biting human beings? You don't get anything out of it. Amalei, the snake says, if the heavens hadn't told me to bite, this is my curse, right? The snake was cursed, he's going to bite us in the heel. This is a gzera from Akash Baruch all the animals hunt and eat for their own pleasure, for their benefit. They want to eat. The nachash, the snake, I'm not talking about a snake eating a mouse, but a human being. It doesn't eat human beings. Anaconda movies notwithstanding, right? It doesn't do it for its pleasure. So this is an allusion to the fact that since the snake is not doing it for its own benefit, it's doing it as part of the Gzair of HaKadosh Baruch so if it hadn't been cursed to bite us, great things would have come out of it. Because the snake does things purely because Hashem tells it to do it. Now again, allegorical, I'm not going to get into what this really means. Now listen to this. This is, and you got to remember who's writing this. The Eish Kodesh is writing this in the Warsaw Ghetto. In a secret underground chamber where he's giving shear. These shearim were found after the war. There are different legends as to how they were found. There was a letter in the front of the Eish Kodesh, of the, of the manuscript that he had in the tin cans. And he says, if you're reading this and the war is over, then I'm in the Allah Mahamas, I'm in the world of truth. Presumably what he means is, I would definitely have come back to get, to get this, holy, this holy Torah. So if you're reading this, I'm gone. <clears throat> and he says, I don't know if there are any Jews left in Warsaw. He says, I don't know if there are any Jews left in Israel. He says, but I'm sure there are Jews left in, 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 in the holy city of Yafo, near Tel Aviv, right? Because that's where it was back then. And if you will do me the service of getting these words of Torah, this holy fire, that's why it's called Eish Kodesh, to my brother, Right in, in, in Eretz Yisrael, then I will pray in you, with you and your family forever. And then he adds a piece. He says, and if you are in a bookstore in Yerushalayim, and these words of Torah have merited to be printed and to see the light of day, if you will learn from this holy Torah, know that I will go, if necessary, before the Kisei Arachim itself. I will go before the throne of mercy to demand mercy for you and your family forever. Now I'm reading this in a bookstore. I just picked it up. I heard about this. I read this letter. I'm like, I'm going to buy this book. <laughs> you know, right? It's not a simple safer. He quotes pieces. You have to know what the Gemara is talking about. Whatever. There are now English translations and portions. I don't know. Listen to what he says. This is the Age Kodesh. Odefshar kikshashem nifra ayadei chayat torefet shedarkal echol basar when Hashem causes payment or punishment. Through an animal that does it to eat meat. When Hashem punishes someone and he's attacked by an animal, which does it for its own benefit, then Hashem is using, Hashem is disguising, he's hiding the din in the context of nature. And you can't always see that it's Hashem's din because it's the natural order of things, right? Because every animal, it's normal for it to eat and want what it needs. 
מה שאין כן, כשנפרע על ידי נחש, when it's the נחש, when it's the snake that is attempting to exact punishment, היא התגלות הדין כמו שהוא בלא התלבשות בדרך הטבע. Then din is not hidden in nature, because it makes no sense. It's a clear demonstration. He gets nothing out of it. It's counterintuitive. It's illogical. That's what we see in the snake. Now listen to what he says, and according to this, This is one of the rare instances where he mentions what's going on. He doesn't... He never uses the word Germany, Nazis in his work, not to give them the privilege of being included in a work of Kedusha, but he alludes to them, because it's clear what the people he's teaching Torah to are suffering with. When we see Chas V'Shalom, Me'anim Otanu, they're torturing us. U'me'sarim b'nyanim sh'lema'anei u'me'sarim shum tova yotzeit mem. That doesn't make sense. They're diverting trains to take 400,000 Jews of Hungary to Auschwitz when they need these trains desperately to support their troops. That they're murdering us even though we're labor battalions. It, makes, it was illogical what the Nazis did. As yodim mizeh, shekasher nashuv v'nitpalel Hashem, as gam yoshia Hashem lano b'yishua b'yitgalut. Then we know this is Yad Hashem. And we know that, that, that when we realize this, and we're ready to, to sort of reconnect with HaKadosh Baruch or whatever's been missing, then Yeshuaat Hashem keherifayim. Then Hashem will bring us Redemption in the blink of an eye beyond our imagination. And he writes elsewhere, we may not live to see this, but this will happen. Evil, says the Eish Kodesh, has within it the spark of good. And there will come a time when that very evil will be transformed into good. And we'll finish just with this idea. What does Yaakov say? It's a very strange piece. So Yaakov battles whoever he's battling. And at the end... He says, let me go. Let me go. And Yaakov says, I want you to give me a bracha. Did you ever think about this? Yaakov wants a bracha from Esav? And by the way, if you look carefully, there's a whole discussion that we don't have time for. Yaakov meets Esav, Esav hugs him. What's going on there is an interesting question. And at the end, before Esav parts, he blesses Yaakov. There is a bracha that we receive from the epitome of evil. Why does Yaakov say, Berach Tani, bless me, says the Eish Kodesh? Because if Yaakov isn't blessed by Esau, then when the dust settles, he won the battle, but they're back where they started. Yaakov is still Yaakov, Esau is still Esau, and it'll happen again. Yaakov says, I want to get to reality. When this battle is over, Esau is no longer Esau, and Yaakov is no longer Yaakov. Yaakov becomes Israel. You have overcome evil. We will no longer be the Galut Jew who survived the Kishinev program. We won't survive Chmelnitsky's massacres and be able to move to Poland. Right? You know why they call Poland, Polin? Polanya. They came finally to a place a thousand years ago. And they felt it was beautiful. And there are all these legends, those who come to Poland will hear them from Yitzchak. They felt they'd finally found their home. And they lived there for a thousand years. And there was no shortage of Jews from Poland who thought... This is the home of the Jewish people. Do you know that Rav Meir Shapiro, who started uh, the Yeshiva of Lublin, was a member of the Polish parliament. They had Jewish members of parliament. They could vote. They had land rights. They were in Gan Eden. Shem says, that's not home. 
You're still in galut. You just traded one galut for another. Yaakov says, I want Esav to bless me. I want the evil of Esav to be transformed to good. I want it to be the impetus for good. Now, it's a dangerous thing what I'm about to say, and, and I don't understand the Holocaust, and I don't think I ever will. But neither do I think that it's, it's random that three years after the Holocaust, the state of Israel was born. It's not an accident that after the greatest evil that we've ever known, the Jewish people finally come home. Or home. What do we do with evil? How do we see the evil that Hashem... Now, don't get me wrong. You can't, you can't speak to someone else who's struggling and explain this to them. That's not healthy. Nor do we have any idea. You see somebody else suffering, your job is to be with them. But when evil comes and confronts us, right? you know, the, 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 the Maggid of Mizrich says in the Tzavat Rivash, if somebody is standing before you with a sword, the first thing you have to ask is why did Hashem send this person with a sword? Understand that everything comes from Kodesh Baruch. It all is part of Hashem's world. And there are lots of things that we won't understand and we'll never understand, but that doesn't mean we stop asking. So, the Holocaust is too big. But the minor evils, things that we can't understand. We're living in a world where there's a country that lives, you know, a thousand kilometers from here, and they're dedicated, or at least the leadership is dedicated, to genocide, they want to destroy the Jewish people. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. They're being destroyed economically. They're experiencing riots all over the country for months now. I just saw a story that they released the home addresses of members of the riot police of the, the, the Iranian Guard because the, 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 the rebels are going to take revenge on them. They're, they're upping the volume on the war. Can you imagine? This was Shimon Peres' greatest challenge. Shimon Peres was president of Israel, was prime minister of Israel. He was one of the architects of the Oslo Accords. I personally think that was a big mistake, but we could have that discussion another time. But he certainly wanted peace. And he couldn't understand. Why. It made no sense that the Arabs don't sign a peace accord with us. They would benefit economically. They would benefit socially. They would benefit technologically. It's unbelievable what the Middle East It makes no sense. Whenever you see evil that makes no sense, it's a sure sign that a curse broke was stirring the pot. There's something bigger going on. And this Parsha teaches us to begin to see the world through that prism. So this is just the beginning of a dialogue that's going to take us all year, but it is something to think about. Um, a, a few thoughts on the Parsha of Vayishlach.